Right. Good, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, students, if there are some of you here. And welcome to the latest in the, this uh, series of lectures by the European, from the European Institute and the Darendorf Forum. As you can see in the title, there's a minor provocation in, the, in, in what we're going to be t talking about, which is particularly apt in this country, what happens next with the euro? Somewhere on that page you'll see, uh, for those of you who are obsessed with Twitter, the possibility of a hashtag, I think it's hash LSE France. And I would like you, therefore, to join me in welcoming our speaker, who, as you know from you, because you've read the biographies, is the, the governor of the Banque de France, the French Central Bank. That means he's on the governing council of the European Central Bank. We're not going to be talking about the latest decisions on, made by the governing council last week, but there'll be plenty of other things to discuss. You are in the presence of someone who has filled a number of very prominent jobs in France, including being an advisor or working closely with at least three centre-left finance ministers, maybe a couple of whom had certain local difficulties later in their careers, well after you had stopped advising them. Uh, François Vinerard de Gallo is uh, someone who's been through the, the French Grande École. I believe you're an inspector de finance, which is the, the cream of the cream of the, the French system. So much so that uh, President Macron is talking about suppressing the school he went to. <laughs> because the cream of the cream seems to have got France into difficulties. I hope there is nothing personal in President Macron's nothing decision was... about me. <laughs> So, will you join me in giving a, a strong LSE welcome to François Villeneuve de, de Gallo? <laughs> Monsieur le Gouverneur, la parole est à vous. Thank you very much. Merci, Monsieur le Professeur. Professor Beg speaks an excellent French. You are probably not aware about that, but I will speak in English, nevertheless. Thank you very much for your warm welcome. And let me say how pleased and honored I am to be with you at LSE this afternoon. Let me also send my warmest thanks to Dame Minouche Shafik for a kind invitation and to you, Professor Berg, for your warm welcome. I would also like to thank your team at the European Institute for organizing this lecture. The London School of Economics and Political Science is well known as an institution of excellence, and you are all witness of this excellence. Your economics fellows, let me quote only a few of them, Mandel, Phillips, Pisarides, have been major sources of influence in times of action. And if you allow me, one remark on your name, never has economics been so strongly influenced by political science as today. To be more precise, economics is today influenced perhaps more by political confusion than by political science, but your name remains very useful. I stand before you today as a central banker, but also as a committed European. You come here from all over the world, 
But the fate of Europe matters for all of you. And hence, I would like to address the issue of the euro in my double capacity as central banker and convinced European citizen. I don't know if you are aware that 20, this year, 2019, marks the 20th anniversary of the euro. Since its inception, it has been a tremendous economic and political ambition. Its achievements are decisive, and the challenges it faces are almost as great in the context of the present uncertainty. As everything about Brexit, I have to quote this word. As everything about Brexit is also surrounded by uncertainty, let me start with some words on this long story of Brexit before coming to the Euro. Let me say from the outset that Brexit is and remains bad news, not only for the British economy, but also for Europe. But we respect the British choice, whatever it turns to be. At this stage, both the British and the Europeans are faced with great uncertainty surrounding the outcome. We are still hoping for a deal, but we have to be ready for a new deal and all the risks it entails. Supervisors, both at national and European levels, have encouraged and monitored the implementation of contingency plans by the financial industry. Let me say it very simply, on our side, we are ready. And let me only add one word and one wish on the future relationship between the UK and the European Union. After Brexit, we will obviously no longer belong to the same European club, but we will hopefully remain close partners and friends. The UK will continue to participate in the international forums such as the G7, G20, Financial Stability Board, etc., where cooperation will be much needed, I would even say more needed than ever, to face our common challenges such as financial stability, digitalization, and the regulation of fintechs, as well as the challenge of green finance. In a context where the multilateral order is being put at risk, let me express one wish. The wish that the UK, together with the EU, may resolutely strive to renew multilateralism. And let me now look ahead, however, beyond Brexit, and start with the achievements of the euro. These troubled times for Europe have nevertheless the merit of making one thing very clear. The euro is for the European citizens more than a trusted currency. It is a vital asset. In the global financial arena, 
which has become turbulent, our union is our greatest chance. As you know, the single currency was officially launched with the Maastricht Treaty in 1992 and introduced 20 years ago in 1999. But Maastricht and the Euro, and you are perhaps less aware of that, are part of a broader history. The history of Europe and its singular achievement of making the transition from war to peace. As early as 1946, may I quote a rather unknown German citizen, Josef Müller, who was at that time a leading figure in the German resistance to the Nazis and the founder of the Bavarian CSU. And all of you who know a bit about German political life know that this party, CSU, is certainly not a party of, let me say, Euro worshippers. Joseph Müller acknowledged that, I quote, we need a European currency because countries that share a currency will never be at war. And this was just after World War II. This history is unfortunately just as topical in the highly uncertain world of 2019. So our foundations are partly political, but the European edifice has also sound economic and institutional foundations. When reflecting on the euro here at the LSE, the first thinker who comes to mind is obviously Robert Mundell and his theory of optimal currency areas, which has been used, as you know, by numerous economists to analyze the European Monetary Union. Mundell himself has remained an ardent supporter of the euro. He put forward a number of theoretical arguments to respond to the criticisms, including financial integration and capital mobility, also recognizing that the EMU remains suboptimal. I will come back to that. As Mundell said, as late as 2012, I quote, the euro is more than just the icing on the cake on the single European market and the EU. It is the glue that keeps the core of Europe together, unquote. Over the past 20 years, the euro has delivered material benefits. Let me illustrate two of them, and I have some slides, but here I will see our LSE technology works. Do you have any idea of how it goes? <laughs> forward. Oh. Ah, perhaps this way. Yes, that's it. You are already completely reassured about LSE, but so am I now. Um, first, in line with our mandate, and you see it on the left, inflation has been kept under control. Average inflation has stood at 1.7% in Europe in the last 20 years, almost three times lower than over the preceding 20 ones. 
This directly benefits households' purchasing power and helps build confidence in the value of the currency. Second, the euro also helps consolidate the single market. In order to achieve greater trade integration, it was necessary to reduce currency fluctuations. And you see it on the right. The single currency put an end to the serious internal disruptions. While eradicating volatility within the euro area, exchange rate risk decreased with the rest of the world also, particularly with the dollar and the yen, after 1999. Overall, the volatility of France's nominal exchange rate was 2.7 times lower during the 20 years following the introduction of the euro than during the preceding 20 months. Thanks to this double stability, price stability, exchange rate stability, the euro benefits from the growing confidence of the 340 million Europeans who share it. Today, and these are important figures, the number of citizens favorable to the euro is at an all-time high, and we measure this confidence each semester. 76% of euro area citizens support I quote, an economic and monetary union with one single currency, the euro. And this might be a surprise to you. This number is still higher in Germany, you can see it, with 81%. This political support in Europe and in Germany is a decisive asset which should never be understated. The euro is a success, both in terms of its initial objectives and the public confidence it inspires. But, but we have not yet come to the end of the road. At a time when the economy is slowing down in Europe and tensions are high internationally, we need to focus on three challenges which I will develop now. Resilience, growth, and sovereignty. The first challenge is to increase resilience. The global financial crisis of 2008-09 and the 2011-12 financial crisis in Europe required both a proactive monetary policy stance and the handling of financial fragilities in the euro area through the banking union. As regards monetary policy, as said, I will not make or add any personal comments to the many which have been raised by our last governing council. But let me take the long view. Over the past decade, the euro system has deployed an innovative and resolute monetary policy strategy, which has helped stabilize the euro area economy and reduce the cost of crisis. To quote you two simple figures, this has been effective with an estimated almost 2% of additional growth and additional inflation in Europe 
in the last five years, between 2016 and 2020. And it has contributed to the creation of more than 10 million jobs in the euro area since 2013, an unprecedented result. Turning to the banking union, a lot has been achieved to improve the resilience of the euro area. European banks are now sounder thanks to the single supervisory mechanism, what we call the SSM, based in Frankfurt, a decisive breakthrough five years ago, through the reduction of non-performing loans and the creation of a framework for resolution. However, and I come to the challenges, little progress has been made in achieving the creation of a single banking market. <coughs> where genuine pan-European banking groups could operate more effectively. In the United States, the top five commercial banks now account for more than 40% of business activity and operate across state lines. In the EU area, by contrast, the market share of the top five bank is less than 20%, less than half, and their operations are still essentially domestic. The consolidation of European players is key to promoting the competitiveness of our economy and increasing the cross-border allocation of capital to support innovation and growth. I come to the second challenge about promoting and sharing growth. Some suggest that the euro area acts as a break on growth, employment, and competitiveness. But let me also show some interesting figures with the same long view. Contrary to this widely shared perception, GDP per capita, you see it on the left, has grown almost as rapidly in the EU area as in the United States since the introduction of the single currency. It rose at an annual average rate of 1.1% between 1999 and 2018, compared to 1.3% in the US. And the euro area have seen largely similar increases in employment, this is the right part, over the past 20 years, up 19% in the euro area compared to 18% in the US. If I look at the growth difference on the left, it's due to the specific European crisis of, as you see, 2012. Admittedly, with the euro, national authorities have lost the tool of currency devaluation. One word about that. Devaluation can have positive effects in the short term as it lowers the price of export, but in the medium term it can have significantly negative effects. It can exert inflationary pressures via the rise in import prices and it creates the risk of a trade war with chain devaluations. Let me be clear. No lasting success in economic history, including in the UK, has ever been built on a weak currency. All economic successes have been built on a good structural environment 
and corporate innovation. To increase growth and convergence, which is an important topic to reduce inequalities within Europe, the euro has not eliminated the need for ambitious national reforms. This is an obvious truth for all of us, probably, in this room, but it's an important political reality which is sometimes forgotten in our public debates. Let me quote two positive examples. Countries such as Spain and Portugal have proven that reforms can be done and produce results. Today, these countries enjoy above average growth. Beyond national reforms, the use of fiscal leeway where it is available is also essential. As Mario Draghi and all of us collectively stressed in Frankfurt last week. And here, despite a lower level of public debt in the euro area, 81% of GDP, lower than in the US, 106%, or the UK, 87%, we, as a whole, in the euro area, use fiscal stimulus significantly less than the US and the UK. With many caveats, two recommendations could be drawn from the debate initiated by Olivier Blanchard, among others, earlier this year. First, the EU area should now exploit its fiscal leeway, for instance, in Germany and the Netherlands, to support growth. And second lesson, it is essential to choose qualitative expenditure, starting with investment or tax cuts that have a strong impact on long-term growth. To complete better domestic policies, which I just mentioned, the top priority on the European growth agenda at European level should be what we could rebrand after the informal ECOFIN Council in Helsinki just last Friday, a union for savings and sustainable investment. What is it about? And I will comment a bit on this somewhat complex slide. Innovation, we will all agree about that, <coughs> is the key to economic growth. And equity financing is a key driver of innovation. Equity financing is better suited to uncertainty and offers long-term returns associated with innovative projects. And here the EU area is seriously lagging behind. Equity only accounts for 79% corporate equity, only accounts for 79% of GDP compared with 122% in the United States. On top of that, financing needs for energy transition are tremendous. In Europe alone, it is estimated that an additional 177 billion euro per year 
will be necessary over the next decade to reach the EU's energy and climate objectives by 2030. In this respect, the EU area has an abundant resource at its disposal, not very well known, a private saving surplus of more than 300 billion euro per year. You see it on the left, in the light blue part. That is huge. The Union for Savings and Sustainable Investment must make it possible to channel from the left to the right that abundance of savings more effectively towards investment. To achieve this, we need to foster synergies between the banking union and the capital market union. But despite some recent achievements, progress on this topic is proving too difficult and too slow. Let us finally move from a rhetorical consensus in principle to a strong political will and concrete headways, including, and this is on the right part in green, including on access to finance for SMEs and venture capital, green finance, but also supervision. I come to my third and last challenge, a firm sovereignty through the international role of the euro. This issue is more recent for obvious geopolitical and economic reasons. The US dollar is a clear advantage in the exercise of American power, while China cares about the internationalization of the renminbi. A larger use of the euro would help to protect our businesses against foreign exchange risks or legal disputes abroad. You see it on the slide, the euro is the second most widely used currency in the international monetary system, accounting for 34% of the total value of international transaction, which is close to the share of the US dollar, 40%. However, and this is the left part, also the use of the euro internationally grew significantly in the beginning. It has tailed off since the financial crisis of 28 to 2012. And it lags far beyond the dollar in terms of both currency reserves and international debt at 20%. A wider use of the euro is obviously ultimately a market decision. Nevertheless, this decision is closely dependent on the establishment of sound institutions and a favorable ecosystem that ensure liquid, deep, and stable Euro financial markets. Alongside the deepening of a capital markets union, which I already mentioned, I see two main areas for improvement. A, help foster the international role of the Euro thanks to efficient payment systems for transactions in euro, and B, eventually create a genuine, safe financial asset in the euro area that could help stabilize financial markets and promote 
the wider use of the euro. I come to my conclusion before coming to your questions, and I would like to conclude with your nice Virgilian motto. I could do it in Latin, it would be much better, but I will I could do it in French also, but I, I will do it in English. Happy the man who has learned the cause of things and has put under his feet all fear and inexorable fate. The euro is the outcome of this political, collective, and answering determination. But this success is no reason for complacency. And I developed the challenge during my intervention. Jacques Delors once said that in Europe, I quote, we don't need just firefighters, we need architects and visionaries too. The Euro system has been an efficient firefighter during the crisis. Now, the success of the monetary union still needs to be complemented with a deeper economic union. Let the architects and visionaries of the European project successfully pursue their work. Thank you for your attention. Thank you, Governor. I propose we continue for the next 45 minutes or so with initially two or three questions from me, and then we'll go to the audience in groups of three questions. So this is the chance for those of you in the audience to start thinking about your questions while, while I cross-examine the, the Governor on some of the things he's been saying. Governor, in, in your, one of your books, L'Espérance d'un Européen, the I'm not sure quite the translation of Esperance, but the, the hope of a, a European. You refer to the German drama in the first chapter, and that German drama is for France. France is your nearest and most important neighbor, according to you, and the one you know least well. Now, you are, I didn't mention this in the earlier introduction, you are one foot in France and one foot in Germany through your family background in, in the, the Villeroy Bosch company. I, Can, hope, I hope there are some Villeroy and Bosch customers in the audience, no? And are there, if, if I can, say, uh, congratulations. You feel a bit lonely, but we are at least two. Uh, no, and to be more serious, are there Saarländer in the audience coming from this small region of Germany? Oh, at least one. Dann sind wir zwei. I will tell you my personal history. Right. My, my question to you on this is, you, France, do not know, understand Germany well. Can France and Germany ever agree on the way forward for the euro? I, I would about to answer Professor Berg that this is a very British question. No. <laughs> it's your book. And, and, and it, and if I may, no, but thank you for reading my book. Uh, <laughs> and if I may, sometimes a British hope, but this would be a bit controversial. Uh, obviously, we are different, clearly, between France and Germany. Uh, as I said, we don't know each other very well in daily life. 
especially, and here one word about my personal history. I'm 100% French, but I happen to come from an entrepreneurial family which settled in Saarland, in this wonderful region we share, which is at the border of France and Germany, near, not very far from Strasbourg and Metz, if you know the places. Uh, and we settled there when it used to be French. And it became German, but we stayed there due also to this industrial company. So I live there, my mother lives there, uh, and uh, it's 10 kilometers from the French border, but I have my German village. My experience is quite unique, uh, and this is what I stress, that ordinary citizens don't know very well each other. But if you look at the political scene, there was a clear French-German deal after World War II we should really stop fighting each other. And we knew, and this is still the basis of our political agreement, we knew that each of our two countries separated had no chance to have influence on the global stage. Let me stress that this lesson is probably not true only for France and Germany. <laughs> But for many European powers, we, the European countries, dominated the world one century ago. It's completely over. So it's sometimes difficult, but we have achieved much together with this political agreement. We know about our differences, and we know that we need to settle these differences and to find compromises before agreeing at the European level. Can I add one word, or two words? First, this French-German agreement is necessary. It's never sufficient. And less and less sufficient, because our European partners, and they are very important ones, say, OK, your discussions, what did I say about the European partners? <laughs> OK. Uh, your discussions are very welcome because when France and Germany don't speak together, we hear many complaints from our European partners. But when they also discuss together, there are complaints saying, now we should have a broader European discussion. My second word is that there is probably one thing in common, not very often stressed, in the French and German economic culture which is a role of stability. We shouldn't overstate it, and stability should not be the enemy of growth. But price stability, for instance, was not only a German value. And I can be very long about the French history to give you only one example. I am the proud governor of the Banque de France, which was created, I would say, by Napoleon, but. Uh, here it's a bit provocative. We were created by Bonaparte, if you know the difference. <laughs> Bonaparte was a young Napoleon and less committed to war and more to civil peace. And after creating the Banque de France, introduced a new currency called the Franc Germinal, and the Franc Germinal kept its value till World War I, so more than one century, which is probably a unique case in monetary history. So, Stability is 
a common ground of French and German economic culture. In my best German, aber, aber, aber. There is the problem that France and Germany do not seem to be able to agree on the role of rules in running the euro. The stability culture, according to, shall we say, those west or south of, of, the, of the Rhine, is excessive in imposing austerity on countries which are not happy with it. And you have statistics for Italy of zero growth over 20 years, of Greece having a decline of 25% of GDP, of high youth unemployment in Spain, also in Italy and in Greece. Are these indications that the model for the euro does need to evolve more than the, the three themes that you talked about? There are probably, to be very short, in your questions, two different topics. The first one is rules versus discretion. It's a very famous debate in monetary policy, as you are aware. It's also a debate in fiscal policy. My answer is very pragmatic but obvious. We need some rules, but we always need judgment and discretion. And I don't believe that rules can replace the judgment and we can be on automatic pilot beat for monetary policy or fiscal policy. Having said that, rules can be useful and this is part of the French-German debate for decades. Uh, the second part of your questions refers to what you call austerity in southern countries. And I'm aware this is a very painful discussion for these countries involved. Uh, I will not comment on the Greek crisis, but saying that when I mentioned the importance of domestic policies, fiscal policies are part of it. I will stress it for my own country, not quoting other southern countries you mentioned. But if I look at the evolution of public debt in France, I used to say that when I was 20, years old, very far away, you will think. But uh, when I had your age for the students who are here, it was not that old, I will tell you. It was in 1980. Public debt in France used to be 20% of GDP. When there are probably French students here, or when my last daughter is today 20 years old, she starts adult life with a public debt of about 100% to GDP, five times higher. And in France, there were many critics about austerity, saying the Maastricht Treaty imposed austerity, these rules, etc. But it's not true. It's simply not true. We increased very significantly our public debt with, how could I express it? doubtful efficiency because it didn't increase our growth, it didn't increase our employment. I'm even not sure that it increased the performance of our public service. I'm absolutely convinced about the necessity of public services. It's part of the European model. I chose in my personal career to come back to the public service. It doesn't mean to avoid performance or to always raise expenditures. So. In some cases, it has been austerity, meaning the diminution of wages, rent, etc., in dramatic cases. But in many European countries, 
it's a sound democratic debate about the efficiency of public finance and the way we spend taxes. Governor, last, last time I heard you speak, it was at the Banque de France in late March, and you arrived and gave a speech, having just become very proudly the grandfather of Letitia. I guess she's now six you months. Know, you know everything about me, Professor. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that means she's now nearly six months old. Yes. In, in your book, you also refer to the need for Europe overall to change profoundly. And you, uh, as I recall, in your eulogy to La Petite Laetitia, you were saying some of the things that you wanted to see coming forward. Where, where do you see the big priorities in Europe now that we are on the cusp of a new administration? Um. So thank you very much for Leticia. Uh, she is my ninth grandchild, uh, and uh, I, I saw uh, I saw her two days ago. She is in very good shape, and as this was your key question. This is my key answer. But uh, no, to be more serious, I think what we have to prepare for Leticia is first a Europe which is efficient from an economic standpoint. I raised the challenges for strengthening the euro resilience, more growth, and sovereignty. And this should be our key priority as central bankers. <coughs> if I broaden a bit the scope, let me mention two further circles. First, from the economic standpoint, we have to accelerate on the single market. Uh, it was the cover story of a famous British magazine, The Economist, last Friday, not by chance. I completely share this. We have been extremely successful in bending the single market 30 years ago, but we should make progress on that. The value of the single market is huge. Look at the debate about Brexit. It's a confirmation about the huge value of what we had built together. But we should go further to quote, uh, I, I quoted single banking market, but to quote uh, an example which is not financial, digital. We are not responsible for creating European champions in digital, European gaffers, European big techs, and we know it's a collective failure. But as public policymakers, we are responsible to create an economic space which is larger than the US one, which can be compared to the Chinese or the Asian one, and which will be the greatest asset for innovators. So the single market doesn't belong to the past and to a steady asset. And last thing, which I would wish for Europe, and not only for Leticia, is that we are proud about our values. And here I think Britain belongs to Europe. We are proud about our fight against inequalities. We are proud about the place and efficiency of our public services, including education. We are proud about our commitment to environment and against climate change. We are proud about the fact that we succeeded with many difficulties in creating a political cooperation and achieving political projects together. These are unique lessons 
not only for Europe, but for the rest of the world. <coughs> if you look at the contest, all the critics addressed to multilateralism today and to the so-called Washington Consensus, that it was economically sound but socially too weak, that it lest inequalities increase without our countries, that it didn't care enough about climate change. All these critics are more or less linked to our European values, which I just described. And these values make us Europeans different from the rest of the world. But these values also create great expectations outside of Europe. Look at the result of the last US presidential election. Who won that? Donald Trump. I will not make long comments, but I guess that there is not a majority to be rejoiced uh, about the result of the last presidential election. But inequalities played an obvious role in this result. And look at Brexit, too. So what we have to say as Europeans about our identity, our shared values, our social, environmental, and multilateral model matters for the rest of the world. Right, we will now go to the audience. Uh, what I want to do is take questions in groups of three. If you could say who you are, wait for the microphone to come, try to be as short as possible so we can have several rounds. So uh, the first person I had was in the front row here. And upstairs as well as downstairs is allowed to ask questions. Okay, my name is Gérard Legrain. I am a retired banker. And my question to the governor is... I was struck by the strength of your statement that European, the European banks should be consolidated. Could you please expand? Uh, are our banks on this side and the other side of the channel too small for the size of our corporates? And is it not the case that capital markets have a bigger role to play than the loan markets? So could you please expand why our banks, which are already pretty large, should be much larger? Okay. The next question. Right, we have one up here in the... Kevin? And the next one has to be a woman. LSE rules. You don't count, Kevin. Thank you very much. Um, I wonder, Governor, when you refer to... to Kevin Featherstone, though. Fellow Professor. I wonder when you uh, refer to sovereignty, uh, Governor, whether you think of uh, the concerns about democratic deficit within the Euro region. In a few weeks' time, I understand the uh, famous Greek film director, Kostas Gavras, will produce a film on the basis of Greek friendly collaboration, on the basis of Yanis Varoufakis. 
right in front. Just here, please. Immediately in front. Mention about uh, Washington consensus. I was just say, wondering. Say who you are, please. Uh, Shirley, from the uh, Institute of Global Affairs here at the LSE. So I, I wonder, uh, from Joshua Kuparamo, uh, how do you how do you see um, this uh, uh, term Beijing consensus? Is that simply a political economic lexicon, or is it something for real? And how impactful will it get? How competitive will it become? Uh, in comparison to the Washington Consensus. Thank you. Uh, may I ask, would you elaborate somewhat about this Beijing Consensus? Because I'm probably less aware. What, what is the Beijing Consensus? It's basically uh, from uh, 2004, an economist came up with a uh, terminology, basically as an antithesis to the Washington Consensus. It's basically Beijing's uh, authoritarian uh, capitalism model that is uh, basically expanding across the developing world. So I'd like to get your views on uh, the future of it. Okay, well, while you think about the answers, Governor, I would like the next round of questions to be exclusively from students at the Governor's request. Suggestion. <laughs> request. Uh, no, no, and thank you for these three questions. About your first question on European banks and consolidations. First, I don't oppose banking union and capital markets union. And for me, this is a very important point. When I spoke of a union for savings and sustainable investment, it should encapsulate both of them. I say it because there were some discussions some years ago saying Europe has to evolve from a banking model to a capital markets model. For me, this doesn't bring much. Uh, and you cannot seriously argue that capital markets financing creates less crisis, etc. But there is strong advantage for corporates to have the choice of their funding. And if we need more equity, obviously, it can be provided only through capital markets. Uh, why is it important to have larger banks, at least for two reasons, and I will be very short. First, cross-border banks, pan-European banks, are the most efficient tool for European savings to circulate cross-borders. As I showed you, we have collectively a surplus of savings of more than 300 billion yearly, which is invested outside of Europe, while we have huge investing needs in many European countries. But if we want to use these savings, it has to circulate throughout the euro area. If it remains in the countries where it is, there will be not enough investment opportunities. And second, there is a clear link with digitalization. Because scale effect play a very significant role in the capacity of banks to invest enough to be at the forefront of the digital transformation. You are all aware of that. Digital investment are fixed costs, and your benefits are directly linked to your size and your number of customers. If we have two small banks compared with the American or the Asian ones, we will have, without any doubt, we will lag behind in digitalization. And this is the main risk. On your question about the democratic deficit in the EU area, uh, I was not yet governor at the time of the Greek crisis. So I could stop there, but it wouldn't be very courageous. Uh, so let me give me 
uh, my answer, not as a participant of the governing council at that time, but as a citizen and an informed observer. Uh, the Greek situation was clearly dramatic. We would all have preferred more preventive action. So, sound uh, public finance from the Greek government in the first decade of the euro and much less dramatic adjustment in the second decade. Obviously, we would all prefer that. But if we turn to the climax which you mentioned early 2015, then my feeling is that it was clearly a democratic choice by the Greek citizens and by the Greek governments between two evils. Either leave the euro or have to accept a painful adjustment. And this choice was made by the Greek government and Alexis Tsipras, newly elected, and was made by the Greek citizens. And as you mentioned, public support for Europe the public support for the euro, as you know, is very significant at present. So it was a democratic choice, which doesn't mean that it was not a painful one. Again, I would have much preferred, like you, to have a more preventive action. Uh, on your last question about the Beijing consensus, uh, it's a bit more difficult for me to answer because I know a bit less uh, about this Beijing consensus. And the question obviously has important political dimension between democracy and authoritarian regimes. Can I say very briefly that, as all of you probably in this audience, uh, I believe that democratic values are, at the end, not only preferable, but also more efficient. And we have shown in our political lives that we are able to run long-term projects also within democracy. This is perhaps the point I would stress, that if our democracies at present create a risk, it's a risk of short-termism. And uh, we must be able to reconcile democratic choices and long-term. This also belongs to a more dynamic view of stability. If stability means being able to run uh, and to stick to long-term choices, and the euro is one of them, then fair enough. Okay, students, you've been challenged to come up with some questions. Can I see any students? So one here, one here, and we need a female one again. Come on, ladies. Uh, up here, okay, up here. So go ahead. Who? Yeah, hello, uh, Governor. Um, Nick Gottman, I'm a postgrad student here at LSE. Um, I'm German, so I hope we're going to understand each other in this scenario. Um, my question would be... Yeah, genau. <laughs> um, my question would actually touch back on the three points that you made today. Um, and I think uh, for all three of them, we'd need to factor in the current climate crisis. So my question would be, I'll keep it short, is um, how is the the finance sector, how are you, in speci uh, you specifically committed to um, finding concrete ways uh, to make sure that um, the financial sector is sustainably developed uh, it, with, with the background of uh, resilience, growth, and, and sovereignty that we obviously need to um, take care of? Thank you. You go ahead, and the microphone will come to you next. Hi. Um, I'm in day two of the Master in Public Policy. 
closer. Yeah. There we go. Hi. Um, how do you envision the interplay of other more innovative-based currencies um, uh, being introduced into the such as uh, Bitcoin and other technologies? Um, and along those lines, uh, one of your slides on the um, on the status of the Euro 1999 to 2019, the 20-year anniversary. And I'm curious uh, where you see 20 years from now the status of the Euro evolving given, um, given current and uh, technological trends. This, this is working, okay. Uh, hello, my name's Annika, I'm a school student. Um, my question is, I read, I read somewhere that Ben Bernanke suggested that central banks after recessions should target trend rates of inflation rather than absolute rate of 2% because that's obviously not enough. Do you think that should change? Do you think central banks care too much about inflation, especially post-recessions, given that a recession could be coming very soon? You asked for it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but I will also answer your questions and thank you for this excellent free question. About sustainable finance, uh, to be very short, two answers to your questions. Our first duty is to ensure financial stability. That is to mean the financial resilience of banks and insurance in my case. And this was, as you know, the cause of the great financial crisis, that banks were over-leveraged and the prudential supervision was not sufficient. We changed dramatically financial regulation. We increased capital requirements very significantly with the so-called Basel-free agreements. We introduced liquidity requirements. And if you hear the protest of banks we have been very serious about that. And we should remain serious. There is a temptation, probably more on the other side of the Atlantic, to forget about the lessons of the crisis. It's a usual temptation 10 years after. We should never forget. I cannot guarantee that there will be no next, no future financial crisis. But what I can guarantee is that we are dedicated to implement this enhanced regulation on a global basis in all jurisdictions. A second answer would be about green finance, and I guess it's part of your question. Here we have been extremely active at central bank's level, and especially at the Banque de France, creating at the end of 2017 what we call the network for greening the financial system, NGFS. We were, at the start, eight central banks and supervisors. We are now almost 50 from all the five continents. We don't have yet the US, but we have Canada and Mexico, so there is some hope. <laughs> and believe me, there is much energy and enthusiasm in this coalition of the willing. You would probably not believe that there can be enthusiasm from central bankers. But I promise it to you. We are dedicated to include climate risk in financial risk. So in the financial stability, the first answer I gave to you. We are committed to develop green finance, green bonds, green financing. We are committed to include climate change in the future monetary policy. I cannot elaborate, 
but I can tell you and go to our website about NGFS that we are working very actively. Having said that, I always stress that green finance and supervisors cannot solve the all climate change challenge. We need a carbon price, taxation. We need sound policies for transportation, agriculture, etc. And so we shouldn't rely too much on green finance. We are part of a collective endeavor, but be sure we are very clearly committed. On bitcoins and technologies, again, I will try to be short on a very important question. I would make the difference between the technology itself, blockchain, and there could be others, which is very promising. We at the Banque de France are experiencing a blockchain. And the Bitcoin, which is a much more speculative asset. It's not a currency. It's a speculative asset. Nobody is responsible for its value. And so people who invest in Bitcoin do it at their own risk and peril. Having said that, technology will deeply change finance. There is the example of Libra, a so-called stable coin, which is different from Bitcoin. It also raises many questions. And there is an issue to come. I don't know where we will be exactly in 20 years. Professor, if you invite me again, uh, <laughs> I will be slightly less young than today, but we, uh, we will, I, I will come. We will be honored to see you again. Yes, okay. So rendezvous, as we say in French, in 20 years, to, to give you a more precise answer. But to give you a promising avenue, there is this question of central bank digital currency. I don't know if you are aware of that, but it's the idea that you have direct access at present to central bank currency via banknotes. The role of banknotes is eroding rather quickly. I don't think it will disappear, but it's eroding. And more and more people are saying, but we are using digital currency. Why don't we have central bank digital currency? Why do we have only central bank paper currency? It's a reflection which is very advanced in Sweden, in some Asian countries. It's a reflection we are starting at the ECB and the Banque de France. And I would be ready to bet that this will be a major change in the two next decades. It raises many, many questions. But it's an interesting avenue. And clearly, we must be technology, technologically completely open. Here, again, the only caution I would stress is that technology doesn't suppress traditional questions about financial stability, for instance. So we must be more than technology neutral. We must be technology open. But I don't believe in technological miracles. They will not suppress the risk of financial crisis, the trade-off between inflation and growth, and all the economic questions you know. They will put, it, put them in slightly different terms. But we should be focused still on our mandate. Which brings me to your last question about the inflation aim. Uh, this is a very acute debate among uh, monetary policy makers. 
I don't know how many of you are aware of this debate. Congratulations for your questions. Uh, but I, I, I don't want to be too complex. In our case, ECB, our inflation aim is a midterm inflation of close to but below 2%. There are people who say you should increase this aim because if it's too low, you will have you will hit more often the so-called zero lower bond of nominal interest rates. So let us go to 4%. I quoted Olivier Blanchard. It's one of his work, for instance. So are other people saying your inflation aim is, on the contrary, too high. And look at structural trends which change inflation. You should have 1%. So when you have critics on both sides, it's very tempting to say that you are on the right track. But... I clearly believe we should keep our aim. We will have probably a strategic review at the ECB under the presidency of Christine Lagarde, who, as a matter of fact, I don't know if you are aware of that, has been approved by a vast majority of European <coughs> MPs this morning, two-thirds, one-third. This is about the alleged democratic deficit. Uh, so I congratulate her. We will have this strategic review, but personally, I see no reason to change our inflation aim. What Bert Bernanke alludes to is probably another debate, at least in our case, which is the symmetry around our inflation aim. It shouldn't be seen as a cap. It's an average, and so it should be more symmetric or perceived as symmetric. I will stop here, but... Uh, we can have a bilateral discussion on this. <laughs> it could also be price level targeting where you have to go back yeah, yeah, up to exactly, the level. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Right, we, we have time for one last round of questions. I'm going to give preference to women on this round. So, mysterious. Right at the back, at the end. And in the middle here. Three women. How's that? Success. Right, go ahead. Um, hi, my name is Michelle. Um, you mentioned about Christine Lagarde, and she seems to have a focus on bringing more fiscal stimulus in the member states. And how could you see her actually doing that? In what form she's going to come in to encourage the, 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 the government to, to cut tax? Or, or how, I just can't quite say how that is coming around. So could you elaborate a little bit on that, please? Uh, sorry, I, I missed your second sentence about Christine Lagarde's priorities uh, as you see them. Could oh, you, could you um, she used to have a fiscal stimulus to on the member states. She wants to basically count member states who cut tax, more government spending, and how do you see her achieving that? So how can fiscal stimulus happen? And in the middle here, then right at the back at the end. Where do we start? <laughs> Hello, I'm Julia. Um, I wanted to ask, you were saying about the, the, the many benefits of the Eurozone. Um, my question is, do you think the Eurozone, regardless of the actual wishes of those states, do you think the Eurozone is ready to take in more uh, European member states into the group? I'm particularly thinking about the economic miracles of Poland and Hungary. And the first question is, do you think those countries are ready economically? And is the Eurozone ready economically as well for any potential 
issues. And my second question, would it be the right political move uh, considering the political instability there? Which country are you from? Uh, Poland. <laughs> <laughs> and right at the back. Hi, um, my name is Diana and I'm an A-level student. Um, my question to you, Professor, is... Sorry, what where are you? Right at the back. So, ah, okay. um, what, why do you think that all EU countries do not have the single currency? And do you think that if Brexit occurs, will other countries be tempted to leave the EU? There are some provocations for you, Governor. <laughs> no, no, but these are excellent questions, one more. Uh, so, about the fiscal stimulus, uh, Christine Lagarde is not only, the only one to advocate it. I quoted in my statement Mario Draghi at the latest press conference last Thursday, saying that now it's time for fiscal authorities to be more active. Uh, obviously, you are right. We are only central bankers. We are in charge of monetary policy, so we cannot oblige in any way domestic governments to use a fiscal tool. But we did our duty. We did our duty. And we are now all aware that facing the slowdown in Europe, and especially in some countries, and you know which countries I'm thinking about, the fiscal tool, which is available, luckily, in these precise countries, is the most efficient instrument to be used. So there will be a debate, uh, but to quote a very famous sentence by central bankers, and you probably know this sentence, monetary policy cannot be the only game in town. And this sentence is today more true than ever. If I take the long view again, monetary policies have been extremely efficient after the great financial crisis. And this is, as you know, the huge difference between the Great Depression of the 30s and what happened in this last decade. Having said that, Nobody should expect, we, we are perhaps victims of this success, but we do our duty, we use our instruments, we fulfill our mandate, but one shouldn't expect from central banks miracles. There are other economic tools. Uh, on the question about more member states, I will come to Poland. But you are probably aware that in these 20 years I alluded to, I could have mentioned it, we started at 12 and we are now 19. No country left the Eurozone. Seven joined. And many of them came from so-called Eastern or Central and Eastern Europe. To quote you three interesting examples, which are the three latest ones, the three Baltic countries. They are all members of the Eurozone, and as you know, they are strong economic successes with high growth. And they chose to join the Eurozone. So it's completely compatible with economic success. Uh, we could have one or two countries joining in the years to come. 
to give you one example, Bulgaria has applied, so we'll see. For the two countries you mentioned, there is no demand at this stage. So it makes my answer more simple. Uh, on your last question about, uh, which is linked, uh, could you, uh, there were two parts in your questions. Could you imagine that all EU countries share the same currency? Uh, there is a clear majority, and a growing majority, but it's the individual choice of each country. So it's probably a long-term perspective, but it would be a nonsense to oblige countries to join earlier than what they want. But on your last part, about the consequences of Brexit on other countries, here what we see is very interesting, and you are probably aware of that. It was a huge fear after Brexit. If I can tell you a small story, I remember being invited on a French radio the day after. It was a Saturday after Brexit, June 2016. And I was quite surprised because there was one question about the consequences for Britain. And there were three or four questions about what could it mean for France, will there be Brexit, could we have the same trend, etc. I was a bit surprised, I said it. But I tell this story to remind you that at that time it was a very serious question. Now it's no longer a question. I take my bet. For a very simple reason, if you look at the political support, the popular support for Europe in each of the other 27 countries, it increased since Brexit. And if I can add a last sentence, it's a gratitude we have to the British debate. <laughs> You can see this is a vote leave organization. Yes. <laughs> I am very surprised. <laughs> well, the, the governor has to go shortly to catch the train back to Paris because he's giving a talk at Sciences Po tomorrow, not content with just doing LSE. But I think I have time for one last question from me, if you'll allow me. You mentioned earlier, I think it was Joseph Muller, is that, was that his name? Yes. Of the CSU, who yes. said that it, the, having a single currency would be the antidote to war in Europe. You probably know that Marty Feldstein, the late Marty Feldstein, very prominent American economist, said exactly the opposite, that uh, having a single currency would quite probably lead to war in Europe. More recently, we've, we've had at least two Nobel Prize winners, and Joe Stiglitz and Paul Krugman, being very critical of the euro, saying it's the, the cause of the problems in Europe. What's your answer to Stiglitz, Krugman, and Feldstein? Uh, First, I believe that the euro is a European choice, sometimes perhaps difficult to understand for non-Europeans, including, including eminent American economists, which, which I respect. Uh, but probably they don't include... I, I said that this popular support should never be understated. Uh, and they probably don't include this political and historical dimension. Uh, I strongly hope we will avoid a war in Europe in the next century. I go beyond the next 20 years. Uh, I'm ready to take this bet, and not only to, due to the euro, obviously, we have made strong collective progress. But 
if I had to conclude with a wish, it should not be a static complacency. And it's what I try to stress, that even the Euro, which is a long-term project with a strong popular support and international recognition, needs a dynamic and, if I may say, prospective or progressive view to address at least the three challenges I mentioned, resilience, growth, and sovereignty. And this is a way we should proceed, that multilateralism, European cooperation, is focused on some concrete projects where we deliver visible results and we go on with the capacity to improve them. And this is perhaps what has damaged Europe and multilateralism worldwide in the most recent decades. We were too ambitious in our field and not serious enough in the delivery and in the concrete results. I usually say it in French, so this is the only French expression I will use. Peu, bien, jusqu'au bout. If I try to translate it with your help. Less is more. I, I hoped my expression was more rich. <laughs> <laughs> so not too many things. Well done. Until the end, with concrete results, and this is for me the key point about democratic accountability. Citizens are fed up with theoretical debates. They want concrete results. We did it with the currency. We have to do it with climate change. This is a fight of your generation, but it's also ours. We have to do it with education and vocational training, which should be the genius of Europe. It's a German genius or Nordic genius. We could do it probably for peacekeeping and some part of defense. My list is not much longer than that. But in these fields, we protect peace and we prepare a better future for your generation. Good luck. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm.